0: Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua.
1: And I'm Hugh. This is the wrap-up of your fortnightly dose of news from around the world.
0: That's right, we're back. I must admit, I've missed this. It's good to be sitting down again and discussing the fortnight's news.
1: 100%. Uh, but without any further ado, I'm really keen to get back into it. Let's go. It was completely dark, I can see nothing, because the power is cut from everything, only when vehicles drove past, could you see light on. Well Joshua, we're going to start with quite a major story that you may have heard in the news lately, and that's because for the first time since the start of the pandemic, factory activity in China has gone on the decline. And look, you might be thinking that this time it's a result of something like the spread of the Delta variant, but actually it's power outages that are behind the situation.
0: Over in China, Xi Jinping is struggling to keep the lights on. There is no power at factories, no electricity in homes, even traffic lights and street lamps are being turned off.
1: Those outages have been ongoing for about two weeks now, and they've effectively slammed the brakes on the Chinese economy. We've seen some really drastic steps taken by officials in China, and that's included things like power rationing and factory closures, which have been witnessed across the majority of the country's 22 provinces.
0: Wow. For a nation that depends so much on manufacturing, that's a pretty serious development. So how on earth did it get to this point where the majority of China's provinces are shutting down factories?
1: Really, the situation, it boils down to some basic problems. For one, due to COVID, the Chinese manufacturing sector had been lying pretty dormant over the last year. But now as China and the rest of the world's opening up, factory orders have gone through the roof. And so all of a sudden, huge amounts of energy are required to power Chinese manufacturing. And at this time of the year in China, temperatures are also getting cooler. So people are also needing more electricity to power their homes and keep themselves
0: warm. The impact on ordinary homes comes as nighttime temperatures in the northeastern region slip to near freezing degrees the national energy
1: but it gets worse because at the same time as this is all happening coal prices have absolutely gone through the roof so it's actually been quite difficult for china's coal dependent electricity providers to get their hands on supplies as demand increases in fact in late september it was actually estimated that chinese coal-fired power plants only had about a fortnight's worth of coal on hand
0: so can that shortage of coal be blamed on the Chinese government's decision to ban the importation of Australian coal? Because I remember they did that last year as part of their trade spat with Australia.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, a lot of people have been pretty quick to blame the situation on that policy. but There are a few reasons why that isn't the main cause of the problem. Uh, firstly, a lot of the coal that China imports from Australia is actually used in other industries. So it's not entirely relevant to electricity production. That said, when China banned Australian imports of coal, it actually helped contribute to a wider global increase in coal prices. Thermal coal used in power stations, that's now 180 US dollars a tonne. That's tripled in the last 12 months. And that has actually made it harder for Chinese firms to get access to coal from the rest of the international market. And another problem has been a drought in China's south, which has essentially taken a lot of hydroelectric power plants offline and forced officials to rely even more on their coal-fired power plants.
0: Hmm, sounds like the perfect energy storm, so to speak. But tell me, I'm surprised. Why is China so dependent on coal for a nation that's been so aggressive on climate policy?
1: Yeah, well, look, it's funny you mention that because the other really relevant factor in this is China's emission reductions plans.
0: China has pledged to hit peak emissions before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality by 2060.
1: So central government figures have been placing a lot of pressure on provincial authorities to lower their energy consumption, and that's contributed significantly to the current crisis. Local governments are really reluctant to buy up more coal when they've been asked to keep consumption low, and I think that really speaks to the challenges faced by the Chinese economy. Part of this crisis has been caused by the drought in the south of the nation, and that just goes to show that China is going to be really vulnerable to climate change going forward and yet as china attempts to move away from coal it's finding that its economy is struggling to keep up so the challenge for chinese officials is going to be finding a way to move china beyond dirty industrial manufacturing while still being able to deliver economic growth and that will be a tough one in this moment bin ich von einem einzigen alles überragenden gefühl erfüllt es war mir eine ehre herzlichen dank
0: Well, Hugh, as I'm sure most of our listeners know by now, Angela Merkel is in the final months of her 16 years as German Chancellor. And last week, Germans went to the polls to choose her replacement. And the results were, well, rather complicated. We have two parties basically saying they have a right to form a coalition and be that next government after Angela Merkel. Let's see just how right they are. Let's look at these results... The fact that there's no clear outcome could actually have significant consequences for both Germany and the EU.
1: Before we go any further, maybe could you give us a quick recap of the election?
0: Sure. So, the election was a contest between six parties. There was Merkel's party, the CDU, which is a centre-right party, and it's been in power for 52 of the last 72 years, so a really, really long time. Then on the other side, you had their traditional rival which is the centre-left SPD. And then on top of that, there were a collection of other minor parties. So the Greens, the Free Democrats, the left party, and the notorious far-right AFD. Now, despite initially being the clear favourite, Merkel's CDU party actually recorded its worst ever performance, getting only 24.1% of votes. Their rival, the centre-left SPD, actually ended up on top, But it didn't do too much better either. It only got 25.7% of votes. And the remainder all were split among the minor parties.
1: Look, it sounds like a pretty crushing defeat for Merkel's party. But from what you're saying, no party's even got close to a majority. So how is the government going to be formed?
0: Yeah, Well, that's the question everyone is asking here. And the answer is, it really depends on who can get support from enough minor parties to form a coalition. And that's going to get messy, because in order to reach the 50% threshold, at least three parties are going to need to partner up, which has never happened before in German history. Now, for its part, the SPD says that it should lead the government, given it got the most votes. But Merkel's party, the CDU, is refusing to concede. And that's because it only came second by 1.6 percentage points, which translates to a difference of 10 seats in a parliament of 735. So really, this thing could go either way, and it will probably take months to work out who the new chancellor will be.
1: Yeah, it sounds like Germany's in for some pretty uncertain times ahead then.
0: Yeah, that's putting it mildly. And that uncertainty, I think, could actually affect Europe as well. What do you mean by that? Well, for the last 16 years, Merkel has been Europe's de facto leader. So whenever the EU's fallen into crisis, generally she's been the one that's come to the rescue. So, for example, when Greece and other countries defaulted on their debt in 2012, she was the one that helped to organise a bailout.
1: Eurozone ministers have signed off on a second bailout package, pulling Greece back from the brink.
0: And then in 2015, when the EU migrant crisis struck, It was Merkel that said Germany would take in one million refugees. Germans have taken their lead from Chancellor Angela Merkel, who was trying to persuade her coalition partners today that this is the only decent thing to do. And finally, when COVID-19 hit, it was Merkel again who helped broker that historic 750 billion euro recovery package. After four days of heated talks, leaders finally agreed on the details of loans and grants
1: to be given to countries' hardest hit.
0: In her absence, it's really not clear who's going to lead Europe. And analysts are saying it's actually quite possible the EU could be leaderless for quite some time ahead.
1: So it sounds like Germany's political instability has created a sort of leadership gap for Europe as
0: a whole. Exactly, and there's a real chance that that could affect the continent's stability. It's really not helped also by the fact that Germany's inconclusive election results are actually being mirrored all around Europe, so it's a bit of a trend. For example, Spain held two federal elections in 2019, and both returned a vague result. There was no clear winner. And a coalition government was eventually formed, but it's been very, very fragile and pretty much paralysed. Meanwhile, over in Italy, its coalition government has fallen apart twice in the last three years. And in the Netherlands, it held its national elections just earlier this year, which also resulted in a hung parliament. Believe it or not, it took 225 days to cobble together a coalition between four parties. Now, what all of this suggests is that support for major parties in Europe is declining, and politics is becoming more and more polarised. And I think the really worrying issue for Europe is is that if domestic governments are weak, they become less able to focus on the many challenges facing the wider continent – So difficult times ahead for the EU, I think, and it'll be interesting to watch and wait and see what happens to this wave of instability that seems to be sweeping across the continent's politics.
1: Well, Joshua, with the exception of European politics at the moment, typically politics has a reputation for being somewhat bland, Uh, but every now and again, a political leader will come along from a completely unexpected background to shake things up.
0: We are going to build a great border wall.
1: We've seen that with Donald Trump, who was previously a reality TV star.
0: I want to be the governor for the people. I want to represent everybody.
1: Arnold Schwarzenegger and Ronald Reagan, who are both Hollywood actors and so on. And now following last Friday, that list will also include international boxing champion Manny Pacquiao, who's handed in his gloves and retired from his sport to officially stand as a presidential candidate in the 2022 Philippine elections. Oh
0: dear, this is where I have to admit that I'm highly sceptical of celebrity politicians. And it's also where I have to admit that I know very little about Pacquiao because I have zero interest in boxing. So can you give me a little bit of background on him?
1: Totally fair. So Pacquiao will often make headlines when he goes into big fights with other international champions. Uh, But if any of our listeners follow boxing closer than you and I do, they'll probably know him as a regular fixture of the sport.
0: Boom. Oh my gosh,
1: what a straight left hand. That is that. What an amazing knockout shot. That is the most spectacular one punch shot of Manny Pacquiao's incredible career. But in addition to that, he's also a pretty regular fixture of Filipino politics.
0: Well, joining us now for more on the political situation in the Philippines is Manny Pacquiao, a former member of the Philippines House of Representatives. He's also a freshman
1: senator. He's been involved on and off in the Philippine Senate and House of Representatives since 2007. So he's actually been quite a prominent figure for some time now.
0: Interesting. I didn't know he was also already a politician. So what does he want to achieve as president then?
1: Uh, he's planning on running an anti-corruption campaign, and he's actually accused the current administration of President Rodrigo Duterte of, quote, taking advantage of the nation and, quote, robbing the Filipino people. Even Senator Mani Pacquiao, the world-renowned boxer who has long been one of Duterte's strongest supporters,
0: says corruption in the government is rampant.
1: Now, of course, those are some strong words, but they're particularly interesting given that earlier this year Pacquiao himself was in charge of Duterte's political party. Pacquiao was among the staunchest allies of President Rodrigo Duterte, backing his bloody war on drugs and bid to reintroduce the death penalty. But their ties soured after Pacquiao criticised Duterte's
0: cosy relationship with China and corruption in government.
1: So, as I hinted at earlier, Filipino politics are often very dramatic And the Duterte-Pacquiao dispute is no exception to that rule.
0: Okay, so what's President Duterte's move here? What are his plans for the campaign?
1: That's a good question. Under the Philippine constitution, Duterte is limited to one six-year term. So at the end of his administration, he'll have to step down as president. Now, up until recently, he was actually planning to run as vice president, which many people feared would have essentially allowed him to have a second term. Duterte's six-year term in office will end next June. He cannot legally run again, but opponents say his bid for the vice presidency is an attempt to cling to power. Despite international criticism... And that's particularly sensitive concern in the Philippines because that's a country which has been the victim of dictatorships in the past. And it's also a country which has seen Duterte employ a very brutal leadership style as part of his infamous war on drugs. And yet in the last few days, Duterte has announced that following widespread criticism of his decision to run as VP, he will instead officially retire from politics at the end of his term. So there's now a bit of a gap open when it comes to leadership of the country.
0: Right. So what does that mean for Philippines politics and its presidential elections then?
1: Yeah, look, it's definitely going to be significant. Uh, Duterte's unique leadership style has left a really profound impact on the Philippines. And that means that a lot is now in question with his retirement. Duterte's violent war on drugs has been the target of constant international criticism and it's seen the deaths of thousands of civilians. And his foreign policy has really strained the Philippines' historic relationship with the United States. So with Duterte stepping back while Pacquiao and other anti-Duterte candidates step forward, an important question remains, will the Philippines' 68 million registered voters opt for change or will they look for the same style of leadership as the current president? At the moment, it's too early to tell, but we'll be sure to keep our listeners updated. Residents in Kaduna state have expressed diverse views over the shutdown of telecommunication services in some areas. They're also concerned about government's efforts to enforce more security measures.
0: Hugh, our final story takes place in northwestern Nigeria, specifically the state of Kaduna and spare a thought for the nearly 8 million people who live there because just a few days ago the local government announced that it was shutting down the state's mobile phone and communications network the processes for telecoms shutdown in part of the state have commenced it also banned weekly markets the sale of animals and the use of motorbikes So the only vehicles that are allowed to be driven in the state now are commercial ones and they all have to be painted yellow and black. And the state of Kaduna isn't the only one to do this. Other Nigerian states have also shut down their communications networks with at least 17 million people affected. And apparently residents across Nigeria are now being forced to communicate via letters delivered on commercial buses.
1: That sounds completely insane. Why has this
0: happens? Well, the bans, as outrageous as they indeed may seem, were actually introduced for some pretty serious reasons. So over the last decade, criminal gangs have been wreaking havoc in northwestern Nigeria. They frequently raid villages, steal livestock, kill innocent civilians and also kidnap schoolchildren. Once again, images of distraught Nigerian parents on school premises this is the 10th mass school kidnapping since December in the northwest of the country. 25 students escaped, but around 140 were taken away by gunmen. Now, the Nigerian military has previously tried to break up the gangs, but often the gang members would get prior warning and escape just before the military arrived. And that's what's led to these measures. The thinking seems to be that if the entire telecommunications network is shut down, gang members won't be able to communicate and won't know when the military is going to strike. And as for those other parts of the ban, well, they've been introduced because the gangs often travel on motorbikes and make money from selling livestock at markets.
1: Yeah, I guess that's a worthy objective, but still it's a huge decision to turn off mobile networks for tens of millions of people, let alone ban the sale of livestock. So how are ordinary Nigerians feeling
0: about all of this? it seems that most people actually support the bans. Residents say that they're sick of living in fear of these gangs, so the restrictions are a small price to pay if it gets rid of the violence. And it also seems that the restrictions might be working. So in one state, the military has reportedly captured 2,000 gang members since the bans went into place. And I think it's also worth noting here that blanket bans aren't a new thing in Nigeria. So just earlier this year, the Nigerian president banned all 205 million Nigerians from using Twitter after the company deleted one of his tweets. The social media platform removed the post from President Mohamedou Buhari saying it violated the site's rules against abusive behaviour.
1: In the tweet, Buhari
0: And the decision caused a bit of an uproar, with even Joe Biden intervening and calling on the Nigerian president to reverse his decision. And it seems that all the pressure from politicians is potentially working, because just a few days ago, the president said he'd be willing to lift restrictions on Twitter, as long as the company pays tax in Nigeria and actively regulates content. Though, it's worth pointing out that with this shutdown of the telecommunications network scheduled to last for months, even if the Twitter ban is lifted, millions of Nigerians are not going to be able to access it anyway. So, Desperate times call for desperate measures, it looks like, in Nigeria at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's some pretty extraordinary stuff.
0: Absolutely.
1: Well, that's all for this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week's episode will be part one of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy.
0: Yeah, our new host Rhiannon will be chatting with Tom Daly, a lecturer at Melbourne University, and Asanga Abeguna-Sekera, an expert on the Sri Lankan government, about how COVID-19 is affecting democracies and whether they can survive it.
1: In the meantime, for more news updates, quizzes and bonus content, check out our Instagram page. You can also get in touch with us via our website as well. Links are in the description.
0: We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.